Hello and welcome to The Cupid Couch, the podcast about love, sex and relationships, both present and past. My name is Genevieve Gaunt, the creator and host, and you can find visual content to go along with the show on the Instagram at The Cupid Couch. And if you're new, I'd go back and start with episode one. Welcome. This episode is about sexuality and labels. Sexuality is often described these days as a spectrum. That rainbow metaphor aligns well with the rainbow symbol of the pride flag, but sometimes it takes people time to find where they are on that rainbow. And that quest can be a journey or a battle, a battle against the self or a battle against society. I speak to the transgender activist and porn star Buck Angel, to a drag queen and a friend who found himself living as an openly gay man for a decade, when really, he was straight. From tales of doomed love, to ancient transgenderism, to coming out and same-sex love in animals, this episode is about sex, society, gender, and the ultimate quest for self-knowledge. My first guest is the actor, filmmaker and activist Rose McGowan. She escaped the Children of God cult as a child, and later exposed what she described as the cult of Hollywood. Rose was a vanguard of what later snowballed into the Me Too movement in 2017. And in her book, Brave, published in 2018, Rose writes, I find the system, especially the system I now know best, the American system, aggressively determined to crush free thought and those it labels other. I'm here to tell you that other is where it's at. So, without further ado, here is Rose McGowan on sexuality, shaking off labels, and her experiences with both sexes. It was interesting. The first time I went out with a woman, I um, I realized, I was like, you know, because the, the kind of dominant thing is like, oh, by guys, is like, if you're with a woman, you're missing out on all this great dick. You know, she doesn't have that. What can she do? And I'm like, but it's actually, it's not just about strap-ons. It's beyond that. They can actually do quite a lot that the man cannot seem to manage. And I've had more fun in bed with women, for sure. I've had fun in bed with men, but I, I would definitely say I prefer probably sleeping with women, I would say. In terms of exploring your sexuality, is that... Yeah. I came to that kind of late. Well, I think I was very boxed in in Hollywood, you know, and everybody was would tell on you for anything. Uh, for me, anyway, I was constantly being reported on, and any anything that looked like it was something of left field was scorned and and meant to be hidden. Like if you smoked weed or if you wanted to go dance on a table at night, then everybody would just say that you were a crazy drug addict or you're crazy. I had to constantly the the running thing about me was that I was weird and different and so I had to hide all the ways I guess I was weird and different in order to have a job and then finally I just got to the point where I was like f off I'm going to do whatever I want and it it doesn't matter but times have really changed you know you have to understand like I'm talking about like when I was young I'm talking about like the 90s late 90s and it was just a totally different ball game but I was always in the queer community from a very early age. When I was 13, when I was a runaway, I was taken in by two lovely trans girls and a stripper named Tina. And we had so much fun. We had a blast. They're still my friends. And, but it wasn't, I wasn't ready. I was 13, so I wasn't ready to explore sexuality or, or anything like that at that point. I was just happy to be in a safe environment because I felt always a lot more safe in a queer environment than I did in straight environments. Like straight men always have scared me. They've, they've, uh, they freaked me out for a really long time. I, they were very dangerous. I was a very beautiful young woman and um, it kind of made the women, and I was marketed as a sex symbol, you know, not by my choice, but just by how the studios did it. And so it kind of made all the women not like you and all the men think they could touch you. So I tried to, hide from them as much as possible but it was like constantly groping constantly grabbing constantly like ownership and you know just beware of anybody that thinks they own you so do you think you feel safer now being with people who are not 
heterosexual men. Yes, I feel safer, but also just where I'm at in my life, I just won't tolerate fuckery. I just won't have it. So it doesn't, I'm strong enough in myself now. I wish it hadn't taken this long. And I think it took this long because I was busy playing other people for so long. I wasn't in my own mind. I was in somebody else's for so many years, you know, and and it kind of stole a lot of my life, Uh, a lot of time where I would have gotten to be myself. Most people go to a job and they get to have their own thoughts during the day, right? This is not that job at all. Uh, You put your own mind and soul and passions on the shelf for as long as you're doing this this role. And I kind of worked back to back to back. And my closet would look, you know, kind of schizophrenic. It was like, oh, this chunk of clothes here is from when I played, I went shopping while I was playing this character. This is one when I played that character. And I, I got really lost, like, style-wise. I got really lost. I got lost in every way you could get lost. But I had this, like, alarm bell going off in my head that was like, wake up, you don't like this. Wake up, wake up, wake up. And it took me a while to wake up. But when I did, I kind of woke up with a vengeance. So how you might say. <laughs> How would you describe or define yourself now? I know you don't like labels, which is quite right. Non-binary, is that how you see yourself? No, I don't. I don't. I think I'm non-binary of thought. You know, I don't. I said that in an interview and then it went all over that I I was declaring that I was non-binary. I'm like, no, you missed the point. Um, I don't care what people want to label themselves. You know, have a party, but don't label me. I'm not, I'm not a fan of really anything. I just like doing what I want to do when I want to do it, pretty much. That's my general goal in life. And I try to live by that golden rule. Rose talking about Hollywood policing is reminiscent of the old Hollywood of the 1920s and the so-called lavender marriages the studios used to organise. Lavender marriages were marriages of convenience for gay or bisexual stars because back then you couldn't be out and proud and contracts had, quote, morality clauses. The most famous example is probably heartthrob Rock Hudson, whose homosexuality was apparently an open secret in Hollywood. He married Phyllis Gates to avoid being outed by the press. The marriage seemed pretty painful for both, and she filed for divorce on the grounds of mental cruelty. Rock Hudson was then the first major public figure to announce he had AIDS, which he died of in 1985. Rose also used the expression that she was non-binary of thought. Non-binary means you identify as more than one gender, see yourself as genderless or gender-fluid. And it sounds so 21st century to say non-binary, but gender fluidity itself has been around for longer than we think. As classicist Vicky Leon writes in her book, The Joy of Sexus, Lust, Love and Longing in the Ancient World, since words like homosexual, heterosexual and transgender didn't even exist long ago, the idea of defining sexual preferences as life choices or as unnatural practices would have sounded nonsensical in Greece or Rome. And on that note, the Roman emperor Elagabalus is considered by some historians to be an early transgender figure. Historical accounts kept by contemporary historian Cassius Dio and others state that Elagabalus wore women's clothing and sought vaginoplasty. Emperor Elagabalus is certainly one of the first on record to seek sexual reassignment surgery. The aforementioned historian Cassius Dio recounted an exchange between Elagabalus and a consort named Aurelius Zoticus. When Zoticus addressed the emperor as, My lord, Elagabalus responded with, Don't call me lord, I am a lady. Elagabalus asking to be called a lady is surely the Roman equivalent of someone now asking to be referred to with a certain pronoun, whether she, her, or he, him, or the gender-neutral they, them. So, from transgenderism in ancient Rome to modern-day California, my next guest is Buck Angel, the trans activist, porn star, and self-described man with a pussy. Buck Angel was a lesbian woman and transitioned young, now 57, Buck spoke to me remotely from L.A. about his bisexuality and how his relationships with the sexes are different. Our conversation about gender and sexuality developed when I asked Buck the following question. Are you a romantic at heart? Do you like romantic gestures? 
Yeah, totally. I'm that guy. <laughs> I'm, I'm also old school. You know, I come from a very old school male space. And what I mean by that is that I like to open the door for the lady. I like to pay for the dinner for the lady. You know, I am. I'm totally old school gentleman. But today we're not allowed to do that. <laughs> today, I'm like, you can't do that. That's, that's like totally anti-woman. I'm like, what are you talking about? I'll lay my coat across the water for you to walk across. <laughs> so, so I am mostly, most definitely a romantic person. I, I think that I'm just old fashioned that way of treating a woman, or even if I have a boyfriend in my life, I'm gonna treat him that way too. I just, I like it. It makes me feel happy as a man. I'm bisexual, so I uh, most, mostly I have relationships with women and I have sex with men. More of my male space is sexual, where my female space is much more emotional. I actually attach, more emotionally to women than I do to men, but I very much love having sexual experiences with men. And I didn't do that as a woman. I never had sex with a man as a woman. I wasn't comfortable with it. It didn't make me feel like male, it made me always feel very female. And so I didn't have sex with men as a woman. It wasn't until I transitioned that I started to sort of see men in a more sexual space. So now you, you enjoy sex with men more than you do with women. Well, no, I think they're different spaces. So, so with women, I usually have a relationship and the sex comes through the relationship. I definitely have, you know, I definitely have more hookup with men. That's my sort of more, if that makes sense, my more hookup sex. But I 100% have more um, emotional, loving sort of, but don't get me wrong. I also have <laughs> non-emotional sex with women, but it's just a different space. I don't know really how more to explain it because gay male, so I have like gay male sex, right? And it's just basically going in, having sex and coming out and just like, whatever. It never tends to be that way with women. And I think women have a much more emotional attachment from my experience, uh, they have a much more emotional attachment to sex. I could say it's situational on some level. So depending on where I'm at, where my mind is at, where their mind is at, but I'm going to tell you that most of the, so all my relationships, my marriages, my relationships have always been women. Always. I try to try to say, Hey, wait, maybe I can have a partner, a male partner. It just, there wasn't that click there for me. It just didn't do it for me where it does. It, there's something different. There is, there's a difference between men and women. I don't care what anybody out there says. I lived in both genders and just the way women react to things and the way men is a whole other space. So I don't think good sex necessarily has to have love attached to it at all. I think good sex has to come from your brain. And if you're not prepared to have whatever is going to happen in your brain, then you're not going to have good sex because you're going to have blocks and you're going to have all of these things that come up for you. And so I have noticed that women tend to need a little bit more of this space. And it's not all women. It's kind of a blanket statement, but you need to have a little more of this, whereas men don't necessarily need this. They just need that. <laughs> if that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> um and back to like romance and being a romantic what's the most romantic gesture anyone has ever done for you oh wow yeah asked me to marry them <laughs> asked me which was very romantic to me because i usually i was the one who always asked you know the last one the, the first one asked because of male female Total role playing, a hundred percent role playing. And this is the great thing about having these conversations. I can tell you, we have a full on structured societal place, a hundred percent. When I was a woman, it was a whole different world I lived in. Now being a man, oh my God. So whatever anybody thinks, we have systematic problems out there. We have struggles with gender. We have put women in one space. We have put men in another space. It is real. Now, I do believe in gender. I live in a gendered space. And I do believe in biology because now we have this idea that biology is a social construct, which is totally insane. But that being said, I also think there's innate qualities that sexes have on some level. And so those can also, and I think that's why I'm a different kind of man. Not only was I raised societally as female, right? Pretty much half my life, but I was also born female. And so that being said, I, I am still biologically female. That, that will never change. I, I just grew a beard and put muscles on and take testosterone. But I think 
innately my body and even maybe part of my brain could still be attached because I don't think like a biological male. And is that because of systematic or is that because of, you know, innate sex, what we're born? Is it biological? There, there's a lot of questions, I think, that we could solve. We could solve a lot of problems in the world if we could understand these types of levels of gender and, and societal norms. You, you don't think like a biological male? I don't think I do. I mean, I don't. I don't think I do. Because, again, I was also raised female half my life. Biological men are not. Biological men are raised like men. Like I have an eight-year-old son, right? So I see how he reacts in the world. And I watch because I want to see these things, right? Does he do this? He acts like an eight-year-old little boy on Roblox, on <laughs> Minecraft, the way he yells at his buddies. Like everything is very male. And I haven't even done any. I'm just that man influence in his life, right? So am I influencing men in a certain way? Everything he does, I just see it naturally come out. So I do think on some level, male and females interact in the world differently, but we're also told to interact differently. Is why now I come to male space differently because I was a woman and I was told not to be boisterous, right? I was told not to speak over. I was told to women are over here, men are over here. But I was that little girl who was like, really? <laughs> we'll see about that. But that being said, we were, we were told not to be loud. And, and so I think that that is why I believe that I'm different than a biologically raised male. This idea of knowing yourself and knowing your body as being the key to enjoy sex. You did right. say that the actual type of sex that you had as a a young lesbian woman and now yeah. it's completely different how has that changed yeah. you as a person oh my god I, i'm telling you i feel like liberated <laughs> I, I i can walk naked anywhere anywhere i could go right outside my house right here in la on sunset boulevard and walk down the street naked i am not kidding you and i do not in any way shape or form feel in any like weird i feel empowered you know for example, I go to the gym when I when COVID is over and I travel the world. I go to the gym all the time and I take a shower with all the dudes and I do that. And for your listeners, I don't have a penis. I still have a vagina. And so, you know, I look like a, a weird person, no doubt. But I don't care. And I just <laughs> I strut through the fucking gym like all the other dudes and they all look at me crazy. Nobody says anything to me. Nobody. So what I'm trying to say here is this. I empowered myself through the freedom of my body. And I use my body as a sort of way to say, this is my activism. There are bodies. I could have a small penis. Maybe, my, maybe, my, maybe that's my penis, right? Because you know, men with small penises are freaked out by their small penises. So on some level, I'm advocating for men with small penises and like saying, hey, wait a minute. It's not about the size, dude. And it's not about any of that. And that's what I learned through sex. I learned through acceptance of my body that there are all kinds of bodies out there. And we're kidding ourselves if we think there's not. Even outside of the trans space, some women have big boobs, some have small boobs, some have none. Some vaginas look this way, some that way. Some. So why are we having this idea that everything is so structured? So for me, sex and learning to just be okay in my own body has been the most liberating. It's liberating. Um, I don't have any words for it other than the fact that it's liberating. <laughs> how, how has pleasure changed for you from being a, a lesbian woman to, to now? Uh -huh. So when I was a, a gay woman, I was very uncomfortable with my body because I still had breasts and I would have to strap I, back in the day. Gosh, we didn't have it. What they have today. I used duct tape, which is like a very sticky tape. And then I would use an ACE bandage and then I would put like three t-shirts over. So you couldn't see my breasts. And when I would have sex, I would do it in the dark. And most of the time I would not take my clothes off because I didn't want them to see my body. And, um, unless I was really drunk and stoned and out of my mind, then I don't even know what happened at that point. But it wasn't until I became a man and that I really kind of forced myself to masturbate. I, I, I did because I wasn't comfortable with my body, even in the beginning of my transition, but the testosterone heightened my libido tremendously. And like, I couldn't help it. So that was really the, the, it, the instrumental spot in, 
me really getting to the next level of saying, but wait a minute, I like this feeling. I like having an orgasm. Why am I shaming myself? And why am I being shamed for it? So I sort of unlocked something in my brain through that. But when I was a woman, I did not have the same sex I have now because I was not comfortable with my body and I was not comfortable being a woman having sex with a woman. And now I am penetrated and I love it. And that's why I'm just like, what? <laughs> I'm not getting rid of this. <laughs> this thing feels amazing. <laughs> and I'm like, so that's when I really put myself out there to the world. And I'm like, wait a minute, you're not going to shame me. I like to get penetrated. I like my vagina. I like the way it feels. It doesn't make me not feel like a man at all. Every one of my sexual partners loves it. They treat me masculine. It's not like they're like calling me a lady and all of that. No way. So it, again, to even be penetrated, I don't even, if you understand that that's a next level for a person like myself who was always so distanced from their vagina and always so never touch it, don't look at it kind of space to being like, yay, <laughs> it's a party <laughs> in my pants. So, so, so that's it. I can only tell you it's why I scream at the top of my lungs about sex to especially trans men and, and people who are feeling so disconnected to their bodies. Buck couldn't be happier in his own skin and with his decision to transition many years ago. But what if you claimed a sexuality and wore it with pride and then years later realized it was just a mask? This is John's story. He's 35 and works in the arts. Okay, so um, I went to university in 2002 and I went as a straight man. Um, I mean, I never had a relationship. I'd had a weird encounter on a roundabout when I was 16, but basically through that whole period um, with a girl um, in Ipswich, Basically, after that, uh, completely uh, monogamous, monogamous, monogamously straight. Then, a uh, first term at university, apart from one uh, strange encounter with someone in the equestrian team, female, there was there was nothing. But I was definitely straight. Lots of uh, I think my friends and family didn't think that I was. Um, there was always sort of talk that I was maybe because I just hadn't had a girlfriend or had shown no interest. Uh, and then my, one of my best friends in that first term was a Thai chap, and he was like, in, completely different to me. He was really into fashion, was very trendy, an amazing dancer. And then it was Valentine's Day, um, and I got a job, or the 13th, and the next day was Valentine's Day, and I'd got a job going round London as a sonotogram, which meant I was dressed up as Shakespeare, and I went to... Um, in fact, like Buckingham Palace and the Sun's news desk to basically, I don't know why, but that's what I was doing. And I was, the night before, um, I went and we had a sleepover and then he wasn't gay at this point or not that he was aware of or that I was aware of anyway. And then about two o'clock, went to sleep and I was on this blow up bed by, he had a single bed and my blow up bed was beneath his and it was really squeaky and noisy and I was tossing and turning and couldn't get to sleep. And then he said, just stop that, just get in, get in. Uh, so I got in, but it was just to go to sleep. And he had what's called, it's a Thai pillow, which is a long uh, cylinder, cylindrical uh, pillow. And that sort of, I don't know, I think we were spooning and it was sort of between. And then at a certain point, I don't know, there was something happened. This was more than just, um, and I mean, at this point, I never considered that I was gay or, um, but there was sort of frenzied sexual, not, we didn't have sex, but we were sort of, you know, he touched me and I touched him and it was kind of exciting and weird and felt wrong, but sort of right because it felt wrong. Um, and then the next day I got up really early to go off and be William Shakespeare, a kind of a sonotogram uh, around London, which was a really surreal day anyway. So it was quite memorable, but the, the night, I, I mean, I really have this memory of this pillow the memory of something happening, but I can't really recall what it was other than the fact we didn't actually have sex. But then when I came back uh, from that day, he had suddenly gone, you know, right, this is really important, you know, it was really serious to him. And he's, you know, said over the next couple of days, right, we, it's either like, we're, I don't speak to you again, it's very dramatic, or, uh, you know, we're boyfriends, because, uh, you know, I, I really, I, he became like, he loved me, um, which to begin with, I was very, 
scared about. But then I thought, well, I really like him. Like, he's my best friend that I've got. I've never had a friend sort of like that. And um, maybe I am gay, because obviously, you know, this happened and, you know, I got an erection and it was sort of, you know, there was sort of, it was sexy-ish sort of thing. So maybe it's, you know, maybe that's what I am. And maybe that's why I've never had a girlfriend. It makes a lot of sense. Um, and then began um, three years of university life as a, as a gay man, um, which, you know, involved, you know, having sex with him, which was uh, sort of, well, obviously alien, but I lost my virginity technically to a man. I didn't have sex with a woman at that point. And we stayed together for the first uh, two, well, it was only, it feels longer, but it was only two terms. Um, and it was maybe because, I don't know, like, are you gay or not? But I mean, I was maybe deep down battling against uh, this. We fought, I remember he fight a lot. He was quite possessive. And uh, we had terrible, well, he had terrible like, screaming fits and threw things and things like that at me. And I always found it, I mean, slightly amusing, I think. I don't think I was very good to argue with. Um, and then we split up. But I didn't go back to sleeping with uh, with girls. I no, didn't go back. I didn't, I didn't start. And then uh, we had a... I had a boyfriend... Not a boyfriend. I was seeing somebody um, who I now refer to as Big Willie James in my head. This is what I said, described to him, to one of my really big friends, good friends at the time, who was friends with him. And it was this awful night. So it was the first... So was not well endowed, which meant... Which was good, as I found, for, you know, for male sex. Because I was the bottom... Uh, so it was, I was the person who was being penetrated. Um, and I went from who was, uh, you know, who was um, perfectly equipped for, for that to Big Willie James, um, which was exciting to see like a, you know, a much bigger Willie, um, but not when it's trying to go inside you, as I found out. And, um, you know, real pain. That's the first time I've really experienced um, proper pain because it was quite sexy up to that point you know he sort of you know he made an effort um, and then he unleashed his his member and uh, um, and all I can remember is that he really tried to make it work um, and I was screaming in pain um, and he really kept trying and then at some point I just had to kind of call can't can't cope doesn't work um, this is not uh, this is not a goer uh, and then we sort of had a very awkward decoupling sort of I couldn't stay because it hadn't obviously worked and it was a bit embarrassing and uh, he hadn't got what he'd wanted and I don't think I really necessarily liked him very much um, and in retrospect I said well I didn't necessarily even want to have sex with him in the first place uh, but I was kind of I think I quite like putting myself into uncomfortable situations back then I think I don't want to kind of kitchen sink psychologize you but it sounds like alienation and, and, and loneliness, the way that was solved was by finding a, a, a niche, finding a, a, a group who accepted you. I mean, yes, I suppose that's what, I mean, did happen. As in, I, 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 I never had quite fitted in for, and suddenly I did fit in. Everyone was very, and suddenly every people that, you know, didn't want to, you know, I would sort of seen at the periphery of a group and suddenly I was the center and I became, I got those very camp, so this is terrible. I went on, there was a period when I went on to game shows. And uh, so somewhere there's this terrible thing of me on Ready Steady Cook being, you know, I just have a memory of me really prancing about. It was so unrecognizable to wearing the tightest jeans and sort of a, um, the stereotype of the campus sort of man you can imagine. That I was really playing a stereotype, playing a role but to a point that it had become me. So thinking about the wider question of sexuality mm. and labels and how we define ourselves, how do you, in terms of the nature-nurture debate, how do you see sexuality? Well, I mean, it's fluid. For me, yeah, I just sort of, pure, I, I react and just said yes to things when I really maybe shouldn't have done. Um, and I suppose that was nurtured, slightly encouraged by people trying to be just welcoming and sort of uh, um, very open, but actually 
it's you know it's experimentation it's sort of but suddenly i had attached a label to myself and everyone did likewise which then you know for a very formative period of my life found me ultimately playing a role of this you know it became a, like a pastiche of somebody which you know I, i mean i was really living that part and i thought that really was me until you know the gradual feeling that you know you can't fight um you know oh, well, you people can i mean it's it's a very opposite of somebody living as a gay you know is a gay man but living in a you know having a straight relationship it's just the opposite reverse of that um which i suppose is what makes us uh you know a, an interesting case because obviously most of the time you hear about you know a gay man or gay woman uh trying to make do and fit in um but i was sort of fitting in by having a gay relationship despite not i think anyway being gay john's story seems to suggest that sexuality is tied up with many things with love with lust and with belonging and what about when love doesn't always align with lust this next story is veronica's and she's in her late 30s this story is about her relationship with a guy called jake and how after 5 years of happy monogamy the tectonic plates of their love started to shift here's veronica um so i met jake when i was 17 we met um i was working behind a bar and it was his first night and he was really really nervous so i kind of did what i always do with everybody try and like become their mum and um anyway long story short we're all out one night everybody from work after our bar had closed and i don't know what it was we we was nobody said anything we didn't speak we just held each other's hand walked away from everybody else and started kissing and it was just a really bizarre moment because it's not like either of us either of us had decided that was going to happen we just did and then i guess they'd been build up because everyone else was like oh you know and it was weird because it it's literally how it happened and then that was it and then we were together for 5 years we lived together um we worked in this we we moved to london together um it was an amazing 5 years because it was really my first real relationship um and also being away from home being away from you know all of your family and friends and everything um And I think the crazy thing about it is it's probably the one relationship now that I think set a precedent for every other relationship going forward because there was so much trust there. It was it, it was just unwavering both both sides. And I think I've always now tried to recreate that and but it was probably quite unique in 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 what we had but i didn't realize that i was like this is how it should always be going forward um but then further down the line i think we we grew up and we just kind of grew slightly apart but still parallel still you know with the same morals and principles and beliefs and and loves and hates and all that kind of stuff but we just grew and didn't there was i don't know there was just some this this weirdness forming between us and then it felt it started to feel more like a companionship rather than a relationship um so the main thing for me that i think stands out more than anything is whenever i was away for like with work or whatever whenever i was away i'd always plan to make sure i'd speak to him and i'd always plan to make sure that um he was okay and and he wasn't excited i was singing at the time working away and I, i was very aware of the fact that when you're the person that goes away to do something the person left behind feels it more than you do even though you're both away from each other so i'd always make sure i did that but then i'd also was getting a taste for just being on my own not being with anyone else but just being on my own and not being you know at that couple that everybody knows 
um, and you come as a pair and you always go to the same things together and all that kind of stuff. And it was kind of weird because I missed him and I missed us and our dynamic, but I was really enthralled by this me on my own thing. And, and that was confusing. So my response to that was to get him a job where I was so that he could come out with me because I, I didn't want the, the, the pro there was absolutely no way we were going to break up. That just wasn't happening. So he came on over and we had an amazing time. Um, it was out in Spain. We had an amazing time. And there was a moment, <laughs> twist, plot twist, there was a moment where one of the guys there had been confiding in me um, because he was, he had a girlfriend, but he was having feelings for one of the other guys there. And it was really messing with his head because in his mind, and at least up until that point, he was, he was straight and that was that. Was that. Um, but I guess in the entertainment world, um, and especially where we were, there were a lot of gay guys there. And so it was, and, and also it was very accepted. And so he was seeing that and going, maybe this isn't such a weird thing after all. Um, and it's so funny because I remember speaking to Jake about it and then probably a month after, whilst we were still out there on this job, he got really upset and he was like, and I could feel it coming, but I didn't know what it was. And he was like, I think I feel the same way as David. And I was like, what, what do you mean? Because, I, because in my mind, I wasn't thinking about that side of things. I was thinking, you mean, you don't want to be with your girlfriend anymore. Are you, are you saying that you want to break up with me? And he was like, no, no, no. And was trying so much to reassure me that, that wasn't the case. It's like, I, I mean, like, with the way he feels about guys. And I was like, okay, give me a second. And then I don't know why this was the case, but this was my reaction. I said, okay, I've got two questions. Have you cheated on me? And he almost cried at the thought of me asking him. Um, and it, it was, he was like, no, 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 that's this, it, of course not. And then I said, okay, second question, do you want to go and be with a guy? And he's like, no, I just, you're my best friend and I just want to be honest with you. So I was like, okay. So in this situation that we have, we're in a relationship, you're telling me that you're not just attracted to girls, you're also attracted to guys, but you don't want to pursue that, and you haven't pursued that, you haven't cheated, you haven't, you know, betrayed my trust in any way. So I'm okay with that. Let's just carry on as we are. And so we did. Um, but I think inevitably you can't hide that kind of stuff, you can't bury that. Um, bless him because, you know, at that point I didn't, I don't think I realised how much he had been feeling that at different points throughout his life, but never been brave enough, I guess, to talk about it with anybody. But I think it was a mixture of coming back and then also all, all of a sudden being pulled out of this world where he felt safe being who he was because that's where he'd not confessed, but expressed his feelings. And I remember we were both just sat on the sofa <laughs> watching the omnibus of EastEnders and um, he just started crying and I knew exactly why and we both just cuddled for a bit and then packed his bags together and looked for the next potential train or whatever back to Manchester for him to to move back to his families because we knew what we had had come to an end but we didn't want our relationship to each other to end um so we had to do the the kindest thing for us both and that was be out of each other's space so he did that um i'd say for about six months it was really tough for us both mainly because he had
hadn't spoken to any of his family about it. His family were really um, not... Obviously, because they didn't know, they just assumed that I'd done something really bad to him because it was kind of like, okay, so you've broken up, but you still talk very highly of her and you still care about her, but why? Why have you broken up? You guys have been together for ages. You were amazing together and all this kind of stuff. And we were together for five years. So they were all expecting us to get married and have children. And we even talked about getting married and having children and how our, what our wedding was going to be like and all that kind of stuff. So I'd say for the first six months, it was really tough because it was kind of battling his family and friends not knowing anything but knowing that we were broken up but not being able to know to, to know why um and then finally together we spoke to his family um and we just again the true to form it was another hurdle that we got through together and since six months after we broke up we have been the best of friends and he's out loud and proud, loving his life. He's an amazing human. Um, and I could not genuinely wish for a better best friend. He just is gold to me in my life. <laughs> Veronica said, we knew what we had had come to an end but we didn't want our relationship to each other to end. It seems that for a relationship between two people to work, those two people have to be on the same emotional and sexual frequency. Veronica's story reminded me of that of Dora Carrington, the early 20th century painter, and her doomed love affair with Lytton Strachey. Dora Carrington was friends with Virginia Woolf and the Bloomsbury set. Carrington was distinguished by her cropped, page-boy hairstyle, long before it was fashionable, and somewhat androgynous appearance, and was probably bisexual, she then fell desperately in love with the homosexual writer Lytton Strachey. But their love was doomed, as he was gay, and their love affair remained unconsummated. Their relationship is best expressed by their friend David Bunny Garnet, also a member of the Bloomsbury set, and bisexual himself. David Garnet said... Quote, Dora Carrington and Lytton Strachey eventually became lovers, but physical love was made difficult and became impossible. The trouble on Lytton's side was his diffidence and feeling of inadequacy and his being perpetually attracted by young men. And on Carrington's side, her intense dislike of being a woman, which gave her a feeling of inferiority, so that a normal and joyful relationship was next to impossible. When sexual love became difficult, each of them tried to compensate for what the other could not give in a series of love affairs. And the tragic end of the Strachey-Carrington story is that when Lytton Strachey died in 1932 of stomach cancer, Carrington fatally shot herself two months later. It's worth noting that the Bloomsbury set were very open about their sexuality, at least behind closed doors. But Dora Carrington and Lytton Strachey weren't the only ones with tangled love lives. In 1942, David Bunny Garnet, the one who commented on Carrington and Strachey's love affair, married a woman called Angelica Bell. He was 50 and she was 24. But their 26-year age gap was the least curious detail of their marriage. Angelica Bell was the daughter of Clive Bell and Vanessa Bell, Vanessa Bell being the sister of Virginia Woolf. However, Angelica wasn't the biological daughter of Clive Bell. At age 17, Vanessa took her daughter to one side and told Angelica that Clive Bell, who'd raised her, wasn't her biological father. Her biological father was the painter Duncan Grant. But little did Angelica know in 1942, age 24, when she married David Bunny Garnet, that Bunny had been her father's lover. So, the famous saying about the Bloomsbury set, that they lived in squares, painted in circles, and loved in triangles, seems pretty apt. And while we're at it, David Garnet's nickname of Bunny seems pretty apt too. But as bohemian as we think the Bloomsbury set was, they were still living in a time when homosexuality was illegal. So, what's the sexual landscape like nowadays for gay men? 
My next guest is Jacob Bird, whose Instagram profile reads as drag queen Dina Lux, model, pianist, and diva. Jacob talked to me about coming out, pronouns, discrimination, and illicit love between friends. Here's Jacob. I ca- like came out when I was like 13, so it was like super young. Um, it's kind of bleak. I came out because this guy on... It sounds really bleak when you say it out loud, but who cares? Like, it's, it's the queer existence. This guy on MSN was like, I fancy you. And I was like, ooh, that's weird. I'm a guy. And then suddenly I realised that two men could like men. And then I suddenly realised that my aunts were lesbians. Like, in the same moment, it just clicked that they weren't just friends. And they were living together, you know. It was obvious, but when you're young, you don't really put two and two together. So it all just sort of clicked together at once. And I was like, oh my God, I'm gay. Well, I said I was bi for however long, but then I was gay. So yeah, but then I had one boyfriend called called Neil in like when I was thirteen, but that's like a month, you know, and like a proper like teen thing, and then nothing till I was eighteen. I went, I veered like hard from like preppy into emo within like a day when I came out because the only bi, the only people I knew who weren't straight was MySpace people who were emos. And then, literally, when I was 15, it just went straight back to preppy. I had chinos and boat shoes, and it made no sense. It was like a weird, like, blip. Because I, I tried a lot. Oh, it was so bleak. So I used to go in Christian chat rooms all the time to find out if I was going to hell. Because <laughs> I, originally, I went hard Christian. <laughs> <laughs> what did the Christian chat rooms tell you? Oh, hell. Mama, straight to yeah. hell. <laughs> oh, one-way ticket. They were like, if you don't, as long as you don't act on it. And I was like, oh, how boring. But I was like, I was gonna get confirmed. I was like, I'm gonna like, I found. So were your parents religious? No, 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 no. It was just, uh, it was uh, basically, it was anything to temper this thing that I'd found out. It's just in the in in the ether to think that it's wrong, I suppose. And my parents definitely never thought it was wrong. They were always very supportive. My I, even my grandparents, were, like no one in my family was all. And obviously, I've got a gay aunt. Um, oh, they were openly gay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. They lived together with a girlfriend all the time. Like so. So, so their parents were obviously fine with it and my dad's parents were fine with it and they were fine with it. It was all fine, but I think I had the problem. So I thought everyone else did. So that kind of like, it perpetuated itself kind of. Um, for quite a long time, I think me and my dad, I didn't say I was gay. They knew I was gay. I think I had a sign on my wall that said I'm gay or something like that. <laughs> but I never said the words. Just to be clear. I know, I know but I never said the words. <laughs> and then it, we, I was like 16 years old and me and my dad were having dinner and we got in an argument about something and then it just snowballed into him. Like I think both of us were crying maybe, like at the dinner table, like screaming, like in a restaurant. And he was like, just say it, just say it. And I was like, no, I'm not gonna say it. Like, fuck you, say I was gay. So I ran out of the restaurant and this just proves how gay I was and how well my dad knows me. But I, I ran away and we were in my dad's house in South Kent and I was like running, running, running. And I ran to the only place I felt safe. And then dad just pulls the car up and I was sat outside Chanel on King's <laughs> Road. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding, sorry, I'm pulling mode. It was mortifying. I was like, you found me outside Chanel. Like, ugh. But that's where I was. Like, sat on the doorstep at like 10 p.m. being like, ah, oh I'm gay. And I was like, I know, you're outside Chanel. You fucking puff. Like, get in the car. And I was like, okay. I then asked Jacob about pronouns and what he prefers. Are you a they? No. No, I'm just he. Just he. I know, me and my friend were discussing it the other day. I was like, I feel really embarrassed, but I'm just he. And we was like, me too. Like, you know, you can be Mr. or Mux now, like MX, which is like, or you can Mr. or Mrs. or Ms. or Mux. So Mux is like just gender neutral. MX, I quite yeah. like that. That's it's quite, quite glam. Mm. But I, whenever it comes up on a form, I'm like, oh, I should probably click it. But I'm like, actually, no, I am just Mr. I can't, mm. I can't give myself that identity trope yet because... Uh, ironically, I am just a man, which is so, so boring. But there we are. Do you think that there's that lovely idea of kind of he by day, she by night, right? There's See, a split, it, this yeah. split self yeah. that you get to transform. And that's what it is. It is like a complete shift from like one end to the other. Like I don't really like, well, sometimes I like looking in the middle, but if I'm in drag, I have to be like full 
woman, like glamour. Mm. Oh well, I say that half the time I'm not because I'm really lazy with some gigs. But like that's why I want to be. Mm. It's got to be like one or the other. Jacob told me stories of supposedly straight men being homophobic and heckling him on the tube and shouting gay, and then sometimes like hitting on him and asking if he could go home with them. And on that note, Jacob talked to me about the confusion of having a friend who we slept with on and off for over eight years, but denies he's anything but straight. Here's Jacob on friendship, sexuality, and the confusion of sexual labels. So it sounds like there are kind of a few men in the world who are confused about their sexuality and this kind of what they should be and yeah well there's a big thing i think we're too we're too convinced there's gay and straight or bi and we think that bi means half and half no yeah it's not that, yeah. Is it? yeah because this guy's thing is he's always saying like i love you but i don't love men and I can't grapple with that. Like, I don't know why I fancy you. And I find you attractive and I love you, but I just don't... The crux of the issue is I don't find men attractive. And I'm like, we've had sex, like, what, three or four times now? In a spa- across a space of eight years? Like, this, like, it's not like a... Re- like, it's not like a night of mistake or, like... And like we've discussed, like I we've like discussed, like he we, used, we there was a plan. We were, at one point we were actually dating. At one point we were going to elope to a different city together. Like it's all these like, and it's because like he thinks he has to either be straight or not, whereas it's much more nuanced than that. I think it comes as no surprise to think that it's straight men who think sexuality should be binary. But what Jacob told me next is that even within the gay community, there is a kind of tribalism and prejudice, Jacob explains. Yeah, see, I... Everyone... So, obviously, I'm friends with lots of drag queens, being a drag queen. And lots of them always say about how hard it is today as a drag queen because men, some men, presumably with some level of internalised homophobia or misogyny, don't fancy people who perform in drag, whether that's a femphobia or whatever, because it must be some sort of prejudice if you outright just say no drag queens, because a drag queen's just like a job, right? It's weird, but I've never experienced it. Like, no one's ever really cared about a drag queen. And I often get with people, well, I guess because drag makes you more confident, I normally get with people in drag. I don't want to ever go out in drag, so it's never been a hindrance for me, really, except at the very occasional time. Um, so as it hasn't really affected me, I think also now drag is really in the zeitgeist. Yeah. So people are getting a lot more lean with it. Well, let's say lean. That's not the right word, but you know what I mean. But like back in, when I started drag, um, my friend was like, we all going to drag together and we're all about to go out clubbing. He was like, okay, I'm taking it off. And I was like, why? He was like, oh, this guy's going to be there. I don't want to see me in it. And I was like, oh my God. But then now he's like a drag queen. And I'm like, That's a nuance that a lot of people wouldn't necessarily realise existed. Yeah, it's weird. I think there's a lot of... Well, I guess I don't have to worry about it so much because I've never been a mask gay. So, feminist. I am just femme. So, the drag just adds into my inherent femme sort of out. What do you mean by that? Because there's, like, the mask... like So, in the gay community, there's, like, like, quite an insidious undercurrent of, like mask for mask which is like i'm a masculine gay and i want another masculine gay so on grinder you see mask for mask no femmes that's what i mean it's like i don't want any camp and it's like straight acting lad seeks mask guy for you know no femmes no camps stuff like that like if you're wearing more makeup than my sister don't message me or whatever so it's like really quite bleak like there's a lot of that like femme shaming and all this kind of stuff. Um, I don't see a lot of it because obviously I'm like an East London drag queen. So everyone's a drag queen. Everyone's quite femme and everyone's quite political and quite cool. But there are lots of like quite femphobic places. And that is like even like the big gay sex clubs. If you want to wear, because someone was a big drama, someone tried to go in wearing heels, like a guy going in wearing heels or an AMAP person going in wearing heels. And the owner was like, if you want to wear heels, you can shut them up your fucking, like, asshole or something. Like, don't come in here. This is a place for men. And we were like, 
men can wear heels. Like, thank you very much. So there is like a lot of like femme shaming and all this kind of stuff. It's funny to think how quick humans are to form subgroups and discriminate between ourselves. We do it with everything. Politics, the food we eat, and who we love. We seem to forget that nature itself thrives on diversity. We even call it biodiversity. And nature sees same-sex love as natural. According to Canadian biologist Dr. Bruce Bagamel, same-sex behaviour, which comprises of courtship, intercourse, pair bonding and parental activities, has been documented in over 450 species of animals worldwide. Penguins, for example, are famously monogamous and known to link up with one partner for life. And among these long-lasting, loving relationships are countless same-sex couples who stick together through thick and thin. And the female Japanese macaque, also known as the snow monkey, sometimes pursues same-sex sexual partners even if a male macaque is showing interest in them. They just prefer to get together with another female. So what if you are like the cute Japanese female snow monkey and have a choice between the male and the female sex? When I asked my friend Roz, a bisexual woman, she spoke of the curse of the bisexual. Here's Roz. The curse of the bisexual is that whatever you have, you want the other thing. So when I was with Sam, I was like, became completely obsessed with this idea of being with women. And then when I was with Lissy, although I was much happier with Lissy than I was with Sam, to be honest, on average, um, and much more sexually fulfilled, I started fancying every man in the street and couldn't stop thinking about dick. <laughs> and like, if I, caught a man's eye, if I caught a man's eye in the street, I'd literally be like... <clears throat> I mean, but before that, for a long time, I thought... When I, you know, Sam, I was like, whoa, dick, no, you know. <laughs> I can't, it doesn't turn me on, doesn't make me feel excited by that, you know. Because of him? I don't think because of him. I think because he was really, we had amazing, amazing, amazing sex when we were first together. Um, but my previous experiences with sex, with sex with men had been pretty negative and, um, and because I, didn't know anything about my own pleasure for years and years. I just like did what I thought was cool and adventurous and kinky and fun and didn't pursue any avenue that was um, about me. So um, I think I was quite like stuck in a weird dynamic when it came to sex with men, but sex with women, women is just nothing like that. So, you know, you can't really, there's not, there's very few places to hide. <laughs> there's, there's, you can't, I can't put on a show, you know. Like, if you're having sex with a man and, and you're, you're not loving it, but you want them to have a great time and, you know, maybe it's their birthday or something. <laughs> you can make them feel like they're in a porn movie, you know? You can, you can be, you can ride them and, you know, you can make it like really, really flamboyant and you can get, make it, build a character really easily, I find anyway. With women, it's because there's not, you know, it tends to be not like, you're not having sex, you know, you know, once you're not being penetrated at the same time, or you're not being like, you're, you know, your genitalia aren't in contact at the same moment, often. It's, you're, you're kind of burying yourself in them, and then they bury themselves in you. We often lament how much things still need to change, and that's true. But Roz's freedom now, to live as she pleases, lies in sharp contrast to how lesbians were treated in the Middle Ages. In 1475, a German woman called Katharina Hetzeldorfer moved to the city of Speyer in Germany, dressed as a man and in the company of a woman she described as her sister. In 1477, she was tried for homosexuality and for posing as a male. Details from the trial emerged that she was prosecuted after having been reported by someone whom she had confided in that she and her sister were actually living as man and wife. It was also uncovered that she had allegedly bought sex from two women, both of whom claimed not to have known her biological sex even during intercourse, one of them stating that she had used a strap-on dildo made with red leather. Later that year, Katharina Hetzeldorfer was executed by drowning in the Rhine River. But queer history is not always brutal, and sometimes and places have been far more open-minded than we might have thought. My friend James, 
whose voice you'll hear next, told me about the term two-spirit, which takes inspiration from terminology in the Ojibwe language of Native American culture. In this culture, the two-spirit idea describes men who filled women's roles in society or women who took on men's roles. Everything existing is thought to have come from the spirit world, so androgynous or transgender persons are seen as doubly blessed, having both the spirit of a man and the spirit of a woman. Thus, they are honoured for having two spirits and are seen as more spiritually gifted than the typical masculine male or feminine female. James introduced me to this two-spirit idea, which led us to thinking about how the way you feel spiritually can change how male or female you might feel on any given day. Here's James in his late 20s. He's a writer. So how, how do you yourself identify? Mm, I identify as a man, but always on forms. If there's the option, I always take prefer not to say. I don't... F and then in sex, when I'm with someone that I like, or that I feel I have emotional connection to, I feel much more quote unquote feminine. I don't know. If, I don't know how how that makes sense, but um, but then it just it, it also it changes for me quite often. It depends what um, mood I'm in or or how I'm perceiving myself, how I look at a certain time if I have facial hair or not, whether I find myself pretty or not will, will influence how I feel and then how I carry myself and what clothes I wear. And sometimes I'll see myself in the mirror and think that I look really ugly. And then that will sort of push me into a sort of much more masculine mode and posture and way of speaking. And um, I say masculine, what I mean is more sort of like I don't know. Tough. Cavemanny <laughs> would be sort of how I would try to try to sort of project myself. Um, in terms of exploring your sexuality as a as an adult, mm. you remember when we were at university, you did date some women. Yeah, yeah. But would you consider that? Would you would you be open to dating women now? I I in some part of my brain yes would but I think that's because I had a Catholic upbringing and I sort of see the 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 best version of a someone who's um, assigned the gender of male at birth that the, the the best thing that they can do is to have a, a wife and have biological children and so that that sort of the ghost of that story is still really present for me um, but um, I'm more aware of it now, and I can detach from it easier. Um, I said to my therapist out loud, I said, I've, I said, I said that I've, you know, if, if um, sexual preference or whatever you want to call it is, um, is a spectrum, I am right at one end. And I just burst into tears when I said that, because it was so, I guess it was just a huge release. Because when I first came out, I came out as bisexual, and then I absolutely was not bisexual. I was really only sexually attracted to men. But then uh, something else I always think is that if if we know and accept, well, some people accept, most people maybe, hopefully, accept that gender is a construct, why do we measure sexual preference in terms of gender? Because if gender is essentially a performance, why do we measure, why do I say, oh, I'm sexually attracted to men when I know that anyone could perform as a man? I was, I, I recently, I recently met a um, female to male transgender man and I found him super hot. And I was like, yeah, I guess I'm attracted to men, but then what is a man? That's the question. <laughs> that is the question. <laughs> What is a man? This is a question posed in Shakespeare's play Twelfth Night. Viola pretends to be a man and falls in love with the Duke Orsino, and the Duke Orsino is in love with the Countess Olivia, 
who is in turn in love with Viola, but the Viola that's dressed as a man. So, in this love triangle, Olivia is in love with a woman pretending to be a man. So, who is she in love with and what is she in love with? The person or the sex? Luckily for Olivia, she discovers that Viola has a twin brother called Sebastian. And lucky for Orsino, when Viola unmasks and takes off her fake moustache, Orsino admits his love for her. Shakespeare, eternal and universal as always, I think is saying that these people in the play fall in love with the person, not the sex. And until the characters unmask at the end of the play, they are deeply unhappy. Because living in an authentic life and wearing a mask, no matter of which kind, makes you miserable. Viola speaks of this in the play when she says, She never told her love, but let concealment like a worm in the bud feed on her damask cheek. She pined in thought, and with a green and yellow melancholy she sat like patience on a monument, smiling at grief. Was not this love indeed? Viola speaks of hiding her love as concealment, and we use the expression being in the closet to hide your sexuality. But the times are a-changing, and on a happy note, in early February 2004, the New York Times reported that a pair of chin-strap penguins in the Central Park Zoo in New York City, called Roy and Silo, had successfully hatched and fostered a female chick from a fertile egg they had been given to incubate. So, with Roy and Silo in mind, there's hope for the world yet, one happy foot at a time. And that's the end of this episode. The next and final episode of Season 1 of The Cupid Couch is Crimes of the Heart. It's all about love's violent delights and violent ends. My guests tell me their tales of cheating, revenge, suicide and heartbreak. So, please join me for the last episode of this season, Crimes of the Heart. My name is Genevieve Gaunt and you've been listening to The Cupid Couch. <laughs>